Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We are in the end of the Bible. We're in Revelation chapter. We'll start in chapter 20. So once upon a time, there was a girl named Dorothy. And Dorothy had a problem. She couldn't go home. Bad weather. Um, So she went on a journey. She picked up some friends. They were a little bit weird. She defeated a wizard. She got to ride in a hot air balloon and get back home at the end of the story, right? So stories have certain elements for them to work and be stories. Um, uh, you, have a, you have your protagonist, Dorothy. You have your antagonist, the wizard, the monkeys. Um, you have, stories have five parts, traditionally. There's uh, the introduction, Dorothy on the farm. Uh, you have the rising action, picking up friends, going on their way. You have the climax, pulling aside the curtain. Uh, You have the falling action, which is usually a whole lot shorter than the rising action. The falling action is, let's get the hot air balloon going. And then you have the conclusion, the denouement, and that is, is, she's home, and we're back into black and white TV again. So, stories all have those elements. Uh, And the ending, if it's a good story, the ending has to do with the beginning. Not just that we went back to black and white TV, but like if Dorothy was like, gets to the end, and she's like, okay, so I'm going to start a bakery here in the land of Oz, we would say, that doesn't make any sense. That has nothing to do with the story up to this point. Uh, I, I, I do some writing, had, had a few things minorly published. Um, I, I like good fiction, and I, and I don't like bad fiction, and I don't like, like there's a writer that I really don't like, um, uh, his name is Piers Anthony. I think I can say that because I don't think he's around and he's not going to hear the sermon anyway. Um, and what I don't like about Piers Anthony is like things pop out of nowhere. Like there's a guy in, in one of his stories who gets into like this poison cloud of gas and he just happens to figure, it's science fiction, and he just happens to figure out, oh, my, my cane is hollow. I can breathe through this tube and it just happens to be longer than this poison cloud of gas. And if that had come up earlier in the book and didn't just come out of nowhere, I might have gone with it, but it was just, this is out of nowhere. It just You can't have stuff come out of nowhere. There has to be foreshadowing. Like, if a guy pulls out a gun and shoots somebody in a book, I want to see that that gun was mentioned earlier in the story and didn't just come out of nowhere. Good storytelling is an art. Okay. The Bible is a story. Now, hear me. I'm not saying it's fake. <laughs> but it's written in such a way that it makes a certain level of sense, and it therefore is easier to follow. Because way back when... Not everybody could read, and there was an oral tradition, and, and a lot of, I mean, I, I've met people that have staggering amounts of the Bible memorized. Um, Hebrew Union requires, I think it requires the memory, they, unless they've changed their, their, their requirements, Hebrew Union, to get in, you have to memorize the Old Testament. 
So it was designed to have mnemonic devices in there that you could remember certain things because it followed the pattern of story. God is the protagonist. Um, set, uh, you know, the, the, the problem, all stories have a problem that's solved. We've got to get home. In the case of the Bible, we've got to get home. Sin it separates us from God. Um, Satan is the antagonist. The quest of the hero is building the setting and getting, God is getting the world ready for, for Jesus. Um, and, then, and then Jesus comes. It's that climax of the action. Um, yeah, most, most people would say that the cross is the climax of the action. Curiously enough, just if you want to think just a little bit differently, it's, we know it's the life of Christ. Uh, John Milton, in his uh, poem, Paradise Regained, says that, in fact, it was the temptation in the wilderness when Satan tempted Jesus, that that was the climax because that was when Jesus decided, I'm either going to do it God's way or not, and everything after that was, was falling action. It just played out. It's an interesting way of looking at it. Some people might say the Garden of Gethsemane, similar role. That was when Jesus had to make that pivotal decision, my way or God's way, and that's the pivot. Whether or not it's the wilderness or the garden or the cross itself, it's all in that realm of Jesus is the climax to the story. Everything leads to him, and then everything shakes down afterwards based upon who Jesus is and and where we fit in that. The point is, and the point is that this is a story, and it's a true story. But it has a plot. It has main characters. I don't, again, I don't mean characters fictional. I want to be very clear on that. This book is true. This book is true. But uh, it, ha- it, it, it has the climax. It has the, it has the problem that is to be solved. In, 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 in the book, What the Bible is All About by Henrietta Mears, she says the Bible is one book, one history, one story, his story. Behind 10,000 events stands God, the builder of history, the maker of the ages. Eternity bounds the one side, eternity bounds the other side, and time is in between. Genesis, our origins, Revelation, our endings. And all the way between, God is working things out. You can go down into the minutest detail everywhere, and see that there is one great purpose moving through the ages. The eternal design of the Almighty God to redeem a wrecked and ruined world. The writer in me says, that is really well written. <laughs> that, that is, that, and, I, and I agree with that 100%. Um, is it 66 books or one book? Yes. <laughs> um, it is 66 books, but they do, bi- it's not just 66 random, they build to a, to, a, to a unified whole that tells God's redemptive story in our lives. Um, if, now, if any writer in the Bible sees the big picture, I do, I do think the earliest writers didn't see the big picture. I don't know that um, Samuel, um, Moses, I don't know that these guys saw the big picture. I, don't think, I, I think God showed them what they needed to see to write the books they were writing. But the New Testament writers had the advantage of being able to look back on the Old Testament and see as history played out the bigger picture. And so, in particular, I think if any writer saw the big picture, it was John. Uh, John uses a combination of classic Greek 
te- and, and Jewish techniques, weaving them together, uh, philosophy and storytelling, um, elements and themes, foreshadowing the building of suspense, a Jewish writing style called chiasmus, a, a chiastic structure to tell the story. And we'll give examples of that here in a minute. Um, well, in fact, just as a reminder, I guess, chiastic structure this will matter towards where we're going, is this kind of A and then B and then C, we're building up, and then C and then B and then A, and we're kind of going back down. It's this poetic... We, we like in America our poems to, to rhyme, usually. I know that we're getting away from that. Um, but, but in the Jewish mindset, a chiasmus was this brilliant uh, writing style that said something, said something different, said a third thing that was building, and then found ways to repeat it and go backwards back through the list, they considered that quite, quite the art form. And a lot, of, a lot of the Bible has a chiasmus that's kind of hard to notice if you're not trained to look for it. A good chiasmus ends how it begins um, so that we know that the original problem is solved. And John loves this when he writes Revelation. Um, the last three chapters of Revelation mirror the first three chapters of Genesis. Um, This year, the first sermon of the year, on January 1st, I preached on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So let's preach on Revelation 20, 21, and 22. No, I don't expect you to remember the first sermon. I'm not sure I do. Um, But if you had your notes in front of you, the the outline would be very similar. Uh, What have we been talking about all year? We've been talking about the unity of God and man. And that's the problem. In, in the beginning of the Bible, that unity is broken. And the whole story of the Bible is getting us back to the point where the unity is solved. And we see that in the last three chapters. So, Revelation chapter 20. John says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, And bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Jump. If we read all of chapters 10, 20, 21, 22, we'll be here too long. So let's skip to verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That, let, me, let me say that that is the quickest conclusion to a story of a bad guy that you will ever read in one sentence. That is the absolute fastest uh, in, in, in half a verse. Oh, and by the way, Satan is defeated. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead who were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books, 
The dead were judged according to. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. This is the fall of Satan and the end of sin. Here's the cure to the problem that mankind has had since Genesis chapter 3. Um, this is what got started and what culminated in Christ. Sin is what separates us from God. This goes back to the fall of man. It's the problem. It's the problem that the Bible is telling us needs to be solved the whole way through, which is why I have a problem with modern preaching. If it doesn't talk about the problem of man is sin, the goal of the church is not to make you feel nice. The goal of the church is not to make you... Um, socially conscious. I'm not saying that these aren't nice things. The goal of the church is to address the problem, and the entire problem of the Bible is sin, and God has a solution to the problem, and we're not the church if we ignore what that point of the Bible is. There is a problem. It is sin. Jesus is the cure to sin. Um, It's why he was sent. It's why he died. It's that big of a problem. The story has a bad guy. We always want to see the bad guy defeated. Here, Here it is. Again, a little too quick. I they, they had, of course, they, they've made the, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They've made that a movie at least three times now. Um, and and uh, the, the complaint, anybody that makes the movie says, boy, Lewis just kind of glosses over the battle. You know, the Aslan, Aslan's army defeats the witch in about a paragraph. Yeah, it, paragraph is longer than the sentence. <laughs> you know, this gigantic buildup, and then Satan loses. Um, it, it's a bit quick. I, I guess it would be. I mean, God is all-powerful Satan is not, it really would be that, will be that quick. Satan gets defeated. Um, The destruction of the one who wants to pull us away from God. Now we can be restored to God. We got, uh, what got in the way of our fellowship with God is now gone. In Genesis chapter 3, Chapter 1, 2, 3. Yeah, just so that I can get this through. You know that if something's the last, it's the ultimate, right? So Revelation 22 is the ultimate chapter of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, then, is the penultimate chapter. That's what, that's what before ultimate. And then before penultimate is what they call anti-penultimate. Okay, they're actually fancy words for that. So we're currently talking, Genesis chapter 3, a redeemer is promised. Revelation 20, the antepenultimate chapter, um, the Redeemer reigns. Genesis chapter 3, man was judged and exiled from the Garden of Eden uh, because of Satan. And in the antepenultimate chapter of the Bible, Satan is defeated. And man is judged, and those found in the book of life are brought back into God's presence. Sin enters the picture in Genesis 3 through Satan, and sin is kicked out and defeated in Revelation 20. Death in the grave enter with sin and Satan, and they're tossed out with sin and Satan in Revelation 20. I love, I, I love that, that John organizes the, his, his book just that way. See, and we see that what we do, what, what we do matters. It's very clear that what we do matters. God looks at, that, at, 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 our, at, our, at the book of life um, for, for the record, you know, we talk about this thousand years, and you've got millennial churches, and you've got 
um, premillennial and postmillennial. You got all these questions about when is that? Th- my, my own belief, you don't have to ascribe to this. It's not a not a prerequisite for being here. I think we're in that thousand years. I think um, I think I think it's figurative. I think we've been there for about two thousand years now. Um, my my line of reasoning: when a cop catches someone committing a crime. They put handcuffs on them, and they throw them in the back of the car, and they take them down to the jail. Now, they still get their day in court. But at the same point, if the cop, cop, cop caught them in the act, um, they're, they're being punished now, and then they will have final judgment later. And Satan was defeated at the cross, but he still has a lot of kick in him. And his final judgment is still coming. And so I think we're in the point between Satan has been put in handcuffs, and he's still facing final judgment. He's still got some of those some of those prisoners. You watch that TV show, Cops, where they're like kicking at the cops, and you throw them in the back, and they're kicking the cop. Satan's got that kick in him. He can still cause some mischief, but his his defeat is assured um, because because Christ has victory, and his final judgment is coming. Um, and I kind of get the impression that he may get unbound. You know, he may get. <laughs> He may get released on parole or, or on parole or just released until he has to come back in for that final judgment. Again, it kind of lines up with our judicial system. Um, there may be some real power that he gets. I hope we're not in those days right now. Last few years have been a little rough, maybe. Rough stuff, but only for a time because we know who wins, right? And we have that, that promise, that good news, that hope. Satan will lose. God will win. God has a plan. So let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Let's keep reading verse, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly and the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, I'm going to skip a few verses so that we're not here all day. Uh, Verse 22. Did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. 
the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so now we see man and God united together, living together. Man living with God. Look, the whole point of the Bible is to get us back where we started, right? So it's ironic in a way. God made man to dwell with him, to live with him, but things got messed up. And now the dwelling of God is with man again, just like it was originally. We, we got back to where we started. In fact, Jesus says, you know, John tells us that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the, of the Greek alphabet. Uh, Jesus himself is this chiasmus. We begin where we end. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the first marriage. And in Revelation chapter 21, the penultimate chapter of the Bible, we have the Lamb, the Bride of Christ, the church, um, the Lamb's marriage. Jesus said that there will be no marriages or or weddings in in heaven, uh, that it's more about Christ and his church, that it's not the same as it was. And that's what we see in Revelation 21, the marriage of the Lamb with the bride of Christ, the church. In Genesis 2, mankind can eat from the tree of life, but chooses the tree of knowledge instead. They get to eat from one tree. There's a tree of life and there's a tree of knowledge. And they can't eat from the tree of knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. They can eat from the tree of life. They eat from the tree of knowledge. They can no longer eat from the tree of life. They're kicked out. But then in Revelation 21, we drink from the waters of life, the rivers of life. And there's, and there's no temple. Why would there be no temple in heaven? What, what's the point of a temple? It's a, it's, it's a building that represents the bridge that, of communication with God. It was a place to go to commune with God, which is an important, as a side, it's an important concept to remember that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I just, it's given for, it's given to us and, 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 and we're supposed to treat it with that respect. In Revelation 21, there's no need for a temple because we don't need to go somewhere to communicate with God because we're in heaven and he's there and so there's no need for a temple. Um, God and man are united again. Can, can you imagine being able to talk to God whenever you want to? No, I know that prayer is that. I know that we can pray whenever we want to, and that's a glorious thing. But I would still love to hear him back audibly, to see him, to have better communication. Um, that's, you know, I, dis- I despise texting because it is so open to miscommunication. Um, one, our schools are going, no, no offense to the teachers, schools are going downhill and the kids are not learning very well and they can't write. So young people that text me, I can't, so many times I say, try that again in proper English because I can't make sense of what they're saying. But even if it's well written, I still can't get the tone. I still can't tell if you're being sarcastic or, or honest and, and I can't. So texting is rife for miscommunication. Better is a phone call because I can then hear your tone of voice. It's better, but face-to-face, not only can I hear your tone of voice, but I can see the look on your face. Face Face-to-face communication is resoundingly the best. I say this as someone who took 
college classes in communication and language and, and, and body language as, as part of language. Body language is part of language. It's part of how we communicate. Um, tone. Um, you're going to the store is different sentence than you're going to the store, right? I mean, those totally different, that totally different meaning. But you can't get that on texting unless you use that question mark and half the people don't use punctuation. One day, that miscommunication, text, texting, reading the Bible. I, I mean, I love the Bible. The Bible is perfect. It's perfect for what, we need, for what we need. But one day, I don't have to worry about the tone because I will get to talk with God face to face. I won't, not, not just reading, maybe not, not even just listening. I'll get to see him and talk with him. And that's going to be amazing. Um, That's where this has been heading all along. Man, in chapter 2, man walked in a garden with God. Soon we will walk in the city of God, which is a bit like a garden. It's got plants and trees, and, and we read about that. Um, one, one day we're all going to be city folk. Whether you like it or not, we're all going to be city folk one day. Um, and remind you that, that we're all going to be in the same city. And it's a big city. The dimensions are just astronomical. And I'm sure that they're symbolic, but they're just astronomical. So I will remind us that if you don't like your fellow Christians, I'm not sure that you're going to like heaven all that much because we're all going there. So we're all going to live in the same city. Um, it was a new world back in Genesis 2 for man. And, we, and it will be a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 21. So let's read chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will, be no more sh- uh, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Jump down to verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. So when God created the world, it was perfect. Uh, There was nothing wrong with it. The the Genesis chapter 1, what he creates, um, it's perfect. There's no sin. There's no problem. So what happened? Free will. (laughs) We were given the choice and we chose poorly. And yeah, you can blame Adam and Eve, but we would have made the same decision. We would have. Um, so, so 
Why did God do it? Why leave that to us? Why give people free will? Because, ironically, it wouldn't have been perfect if he hadn't. Um, one of my favorite, you know, I like science fiction. There's a Doctor Who story called Paradise Towers. And, I, and the title tells you kind of the plot. There's a guy that makes these perfect sets of apartments, these, these tower apartments. And they're perfect. And then people move in. And it's not perfect anymore because <laughs> people mess it up. So he programs all the robots to kill all the people, and it's this kind of mystery where you've got to defeat the evil robots. And, and, and because people are imperfect, and, and, and we were going to mess it up because that's just what it means to be people, because we have free will. Because if we didn't have free will, we'd just be robots. Robots can't worship God because worship only has value if it's freely given. I've said before, if I program, I can make my screensaver on my laptop save anything, say anything I want to. If I make my screensaver say Jason is amazing, it would be really foolish if I go, see, my computer thinks I'm amazing. No, it doesn't. I made it say that. It's only, an imp- it's only a compliment if I have the choice. And it's only worship if we have the choice. If God makes us do anything, then it's not, then it's not freely given and it's not worship. The Bible begins, as so many stories do, with a tragedy. But as a good story, it ends in triumph. The world will be perfect once again, and we will be perfect too, we who choose God. Our choice does matter. And we who choose God and choose to be perfected will have that. Um, you know, what if I don't choose God? Well, that's, a, that's my choice, and then I'm not part of that perfect picture. I've chosen to be excluded from that. Two kinds of people. Those in, in Revelation 13.8, there's those who receive the mark of the beast. In Revelation 22, there's those who have God's name written. I assume it's symbolic, maybe not, written on them. Uh, two marks, the mark of the beast or the mark of, of God. In, in Genesis 1, it's perfect. In Revelation 22, it's perfect. And, and everything in between is getting back to perfect. Perfect in Genesis 1, it's perfect at the end, but we've got to get back there. Um, so here's, here's my... My favorite bit. God, God made all, God, I said, God made those trees. There were two that were special, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, I'll read through just a reminder of some of those verses. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. So there's a river that goes through the middle of the Garden of Eden. Verse 17. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then their eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves 
And then verse 22, the end of the chapter. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. We haven't been able to live forever since then. Uh, That was the plan, live forever under God's care. But we chose knowledge instead of immortality. And in Revelation 22, we get that back, finally. In Revelation 22, um, uh, we, we, we get to undo that bad decision. Now we get, we get our tree back. And no more evil, the knowledge of good and evil, we won't need it anymore because it'll all be good. We, we traded life for knowledge. Let's make that trade back. And that's what we see. Um, the knowledge, evil will be gone far from us. We will be perfect again living in fellowship with God, made in his image, restored to that image, I think the knowledge of evil will be gone for us. I don't think we'll be able to think about it because it's going to be perfect. So I won't have those temptations and that evil. It will be gone. That's why there will be no pain or sorrow or death. Um, It was good and it was perfect and it will be so again one day. Uh, And and so we end where we begin. Um, And I I mentioned the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with C.S. Lewis which is part of a seven-book series. In the final book, The Last Battle, um, in The Last Battle, uh, he kind of ends with this idea, and then the adventure begins. <laughs> you know, all, of these, all of these books get to the end of the world of Narnia, and the, the, the main characters get to go to live with Aslan, uh, 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 an analogy of Jesus, forever, and then the adventure begins. And that's the end. Of, and, and that's how this is as well. Um, And then real life will begin. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 has seven words in Hebrew. The last verse of Revelation has seven words as well. And seven is is quite a number that pops up through the Bible with symbolism. And what a story in between. Our hymn of invitation is hymn number 332. A church united under the direct lordship of Christ is completely unstoppable. The gates of hell will not prevail against such a church. It's an awesome force. A church that is not united under the lordship of Christ will lack purpose, will lack direction. The spirit and the bride say come. That's how Revelation ends. God and his church invite you to choose the happy ending, the right ending, the ending that gives us life. Choose the one who will give you the right ending. Um, It's your choice. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.